0: Scolet presents Recorded History with TheRecordHub.com, 100% Irish and direct to your door. What's up Recorded Historians and welcome to Recorded History with TheRecordHub.com. I'm your host Ed Smith and this is our weekly trip through the musical past of some of your favourite singers, presenters, comedians, writers or indeed anyone I can grab who's walking past the studio at the time. So who are we talking to this week? Well, Dan Smith is an English singer-songwriter, record producer, best known of course, as the founder, lead singer, and primary songwriter of the English pop rock band Bastille. The band formed in 2010 and gained international sing-along fame in 2013 with the song Pompeii, which was released from their album Bad Blood. They've released four albums to date, and have sold an incredible 11 million records. So, Dan Smith, what can I tell you? Such an interesting man. And whilst our chat was booked for the usual amount of time, about 30 to 40 minutes, we kept talking for so long, I could have easily have gotten two episodes out of him. We get to a lot of places in this conversation, and for the most part, it's just me trying to catch up and interject. Such was his chattiness. The man has a lot of interesting things to say about a lot of interesting subjects. And... It's also fair to say he absolutely loves his music. Just a couple of points to make here as well before we get into it. Bastille, were in town this week as part of the Trinity Summer Series, but this chat was actually recorded late last year. It was over Zoom as well, so please excuse. There's a few tiny glitches here persisted despite my best efforts. So here it is, the recorded history of Bastille's Dan Smith, beginning with some Carl Douglas, as all good conversation should. <laughs> yes. oh, Sorry, I've, I've been doing my vocal warm-ups by way of Kung Fu Fighting. I don't know where that's come from. Just a little tip. Talk to, talk
1: to me about like your vocal warm-ups.
0: Well I just did I've just been going doing ho 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 uh Kung Fu Fighting. It's a very great tune.
1: It, 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 was, it that was
0: that was that wasn't weirdly wasn't in my selection. But yeah.
1: um but uh, uh
0: just a little tip but... for you, Dan, one of the most successful recording artists in the world. If you're doing vocal warm-ups, try Carl Douglas's Kung, Kung Fu fighting. fighting. Oh ho ho ho! Yeah. Anyway, sorry. This is... you might have just changed, you might have just changed my life. I might, listen, I, all I want is a little nod in the Grammy uh, speech. Okay, that's all. It is. <laughs> Welcome to recorded history, Dan Smith from Bastille. Lovely to be here. Any excuse to nerd out about um, about
1: albums that I love. And, yes. Uh, and, and I'm yours. So yeah, I'm, I'm ha- happy to be here. How are you doing today? You alright? I'm
0: very well, man. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's great to see another Smith do well in the music business.
1: You know, it's hard for us having the most generic name in the entire world is, yeah. is, 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 is a challenge. Particularly when your first name is Dan. There were oh, six Dans. In
0: Dan. Yeah, it must have been like Alan Partridge people shouting, Dan, Dan. Yeah, yeah,
1: it still is. And basically, if ever, if on rare occasions someone in the street is trying to get my attention, which doesn't happen very often, but when it does... <laughs> Um, <laughs> it it just it just cracks me up because they just sound like Ale- like Dad, oh, the- it, even if they're way too young to get the reference, I get the reference. Yeah, and I yeah. love it. Uh, <laughs> it's,
0: it to, to this day, I would think top three comic moments of all time. The timing, the fact that it goes oh. on just that bit too long.
1: It's probably the only thing that makes me grateful for having the most generic. Name yeah, I yeah. And
0: I, I think you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. there's Tom Smith from editors. There's yourself, of course. There's oh yeah. Uh, you got oh, Sam that- Smith. You got Robert Smith, who was. Leading the cause back in the eighties and early nineties. So it's been a Yeah, he
1: he was he was the he was the OG. He was the OG <laughs> Smith. Yeah, <so laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. he's the king. So listen, how are things been with you? You're no stranger to Ireland. I was reading that you've experienced, you've been initiated in the great, I suppose, mystical ritual of the lock-in here in Ireland. Yes. You you're on a road trip down uh, out west a couple of years ago with some pals and you experienced the fabled lock-in. How was it for you? Oh,
1: it was so exciting. My favourite bit was well, well. My favourite bit was watching all my friends uh, get get strong-armed into singing, yeah. however good or bad their singing was. I always like. I'm not really the guy at a party who will ever, ever want to sing or get a guitar out or anything like that. But even I, even, even me in my, in my hardened cynicism, I was like, Yeah, I'll have a go. I'll sing a sad Damien writer song. But you know, with everyone in the pub, just you know, the, the really good musicians in the corner and everyone else having a go. It was it was amazing. We stayed there really late. And I loved that, like genuinely at the end of the night, in this tiny, in this tiny little village, this little town on the seaside, everyone's like, you've got to like. You've got to like poke your head around the corner. Look out for the guard. You don't want to get caught oh, by
0: the guard my. coming out. It's part of it. Yeah. Um, ah,
1: yeah. oh, it was such a like such a great added
0: dimension. So listen, Dan, just to go back back a day or two, you're your South London boy, uh, where you grew yes. up with your sister, was was music a big part of your childhood growing up? Yeah, massive actually. My mum, my mum and dad are from South Africa, and they moved to the
1: UK, and that's where. then they sort of worked for a bit, and then they had me and my sister. But they, my mum's not a sort of like. Job-wise, isn't a musician, but she she sort of paid her way through uni, um, playing folk music. Oh wow! Um, and so was a, was you know did did kind of covers of like Simon and Garfunkel songs and and loads of old you know Leonard Cohen and stuff like that. Um, so so that music was kind of stitched into our childhoods. Uh, there was always loads of music on around the house and in the car and um, and and yeah, mum every now and then would would sort of like start playing like i don't know at the end of long nights with their friends would have like this guitar and just be singing these ridiculously beautiful songs but it kind of wasn't that when we were born and when we were kids that wasn't like a huge part of our identity yeah but it was just this thing that sort of got rolled out i think when her friends like strong-armed her into it but it was it so we were always like slightly in awe of that but it wasn't like it wasn't that big a deal i've already talked about it didn't happen that often um and yeah yeah, i guess i I sort of like kind of learned the piano when i was a kid not very well um, and sung a bit, but it wasn't really till I was like a teenager, you know, had a lot of angst, a lot of shit to work out. Of course. And, um, and uh, I started making songs, I started doing covers on the piano of, of, of I don't know, who was it? Like people like Ryan Adams and the Goo Goo Dolls and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I was working out these sort of sad, depressing covers <laughs> um, and then started writing <laughs> But yeah, very much just for myself. I was really obsessed with films and 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 weird, strange art house cinema from around the world, and that was that was really where my my true kind of love yeah. This comes up a lot went.
0: in the many interviews that you're. We'll get to it maybe a little bit later on. You're a real sci-fi uh, nut, and movie books yeah, well, and books and all that. It was you know you obviously dove quite deeply in. To these outlets from a very young age, was it a help for you if you were a naturally shy person or you suffered from anxieties that you could just flick on Blade Runner? And I think so. The I mean, it's like,
1: sci- sci-fi. I mean, ironically, given that we just made a science fiction album, sci-fi was never like my okay 2 I quite liked. I don't know. I I, I I weirdly, when I was quite young, discovered Scream, that horror film, yeah. and was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I'm 11, and I'm not allowed to watch this. So I, I went down like. Probably quite an unhealthy unhealthy sort of like uh, journey through the entire horror genre and then through into David Lynch and then kind of foreign film, world cinema. um, And yeah, and and I guess sci-fi was kind of always part of that. Like I loved 2001 via Kubrick. I'd get really obsessed with different directors and then want to watch everything they'd done. but yeah, I, I think I think film for me was definitely it was definitely an escape in the same way that it you know it still is now for 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 so many people. I think it was I, I there's probably a kind of nerdy part of me that liked trying to find the most strange, dark and obscure films that existed. But a lot of it as well for me was like I don't know. I guess it was my equivalent of having that bands that I loved growing up to and listening to and 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 kind of obsessing over. Um, and I loved I loved music, but it wasn't it just wasn't something that I ever thought oh, I, I want to do this, I want to be a performer.
0: Usually in these things, we start with the, you know, chronologically, but we're going to work backwards, which is okay. a nice new twist to the podcast. 2016, record one, and it is Frank Ocean's second album, Blonde. Tell us, why yes. have you chosen this one?
1: Um, I have very vivid memories of hearing it for the first time. Um, It's probably one of my favourite albums ever. Not to, yeah. And I, I don't say that lightly. I think it's, it's a lot of people's very favorite album ever. So it's not. I don't think it's like a, a, a wildly um, <laughs> obscure choice or anything. But um, I absolutely loved Frank Ocean when when he first released music. I, I was really into Odd Future and everything about their ethos and what they were doing. This collective of people who were putting out these albums for free. It was so cool. And like the weekend as well was doing the same thing. He put out these three mixtapes for free, and it was kind of around the time we were. Forming the band and making off making our first album, and it, once we signed our record it took a while to put the album out, just as it does or as it used to in those days. Um, and so we got frustrated, and we were like, "Well, I love what Frank Ocean's doing, like Nostalgia Ultra, his first mixtape, which in itself is just an incredible album. Yeah. Um, we, we loved it, and that completely inspired us to do a bunch of mixtapes ourselves, and, and you know, sort of borrow his technique of of essentially just ripping." soundtracks and songs and samples offline and turning them into albums. And so that became a big part of our kind of creative process. And I always loved him so much for that. But as a Frank Ocean fan, um, anyone out there, we're long suffering because, um, you know, he takes his time with stuff and and like in a way that I think is fantastic. He's totally mysterious and private and, you know, has, has managed to cultivate the ethos of a kind of old school,
0: yeah. you know, pre-social media era um, He's almost like a jazz musician. I know there's a lot yeah. of jazz influences, but he really does. He has this kind of smoky, mysterious air around him that he yeah. keeps and, himself and, and, at a distance. And
1: the, the creation of this album, he just he'd had his his first his first record, um, Channel Orange was was absolutely huge. So yeah, so it was Nostalgia <laughs> Ultra was the mixtape. Channel Orange was his first album, which was incredible and amazingly well-received and beautiful and conceptual and everything. And he became this huge, important artist very quickly. Well, probably not quickly enough for him, but like very quickly. And then this was his follow-up and, you know, it took years and famously he was, I think just like living, to use a really gross modern expression, like living his best life. Yeah. Yeah. Just, he, he famously, Traveled the world, spent a lot of time in Japan and all over. You know, he loves cars and he loves like amazing, fancy cars that I know nothing about. But he would go and do like he did like a whole magazine series with photos of him with cars and 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 he would put on parties and he'd sort of rent studios and he had all these legendary sessions. But of him, I I have I had this image of him in my mind, kind of sort of like trotting around the world with a backpack on, full of hard drives of this music and and this album was like a. You know, it was this sort of like organic, constantly evolving being that that he was sort of just nurturing and caring for, and you know, has one of those fan bases I think where he probably just had a lot of people like me, and I wasn't vocal about it, but I thought it in my head, like, come on, mate, release the album, we want, we want more stuff, and I have such a vivid memory. We were twenty sixteen, I think our second album was either about to come out or had just come out. So obviously that was quite a big sort of time for us. But I was definitely more excited about Frank Ocean's album. And, uh, and we one? were playing We were playing a festival. I think it was V Festival in, in, in Essex. Like, we as a band have always sat in quite a weird space where we'll go and do like Reading and Leeds or like heavy German rock festivals. And then we'll also get booked to play between like Sia and Justin Bieber. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we were like, I think... We are a confusing entity for a lot of people. And that's kind of great. And it's also kind of weird. But I think we just, so we just played. Then we watched Seer, who I love. And then we watched Justin Bieber gig. And I was like, when else in my life am I going to be able to watch this? And then I got on the bus, on our tour bus. And it was the night that Endless came out. And I remember being like, oh my god, this is so exciting. The album's out, but it was a visual album only. You had to watch it on your phone. And it came out the um, day
0: before, didn't it? And then, yes. and then the following so, so day, it came,
1: out, yeah. it came out the day before. And I remember watching it on in my bunk on the bus as we were driving from one festival to another overnight. Because by the way, if you're in a band and you're touring mm. um and you're not the Rolling Stones, you basically live in a tiny little coffin bunk on a tour bus that drives overnight. So you can get from gig to gig, which is like potentially not the the perception of what being in a band is—that a lot of people have—that's another story. Anyway, so I'm watching Endless on my phone, and it's beautiful. It starts like the, it starts with these amazing strings that he recorded at Abbey Road, and it is it is a really interesting album. But that you have to watch it with these visuals, and and the visuals are quite kind of I don't know. I basically I remember watching it all and being like, oh right, okay, is that it? And then then yeah. the next day, I know it turns out that he released that Endless album to basically get out of his contract with. With with the record label that he's with, and then the next day he released Blonde, which was his real opus, and he released it independently by himself as a as an indie artist. And so he did, he did you know I don't know I don't know if it's good or bad or what, but he he like he in one swoop released one body of work, screwed over his record label, became an independent artist who had all of the rights and owned everything himself, which yeah. is amazing for someone of his sort of stature. And and uh, and then also in, in the process of it released, maybe one of the best albums uh, you know in recent memory. It's beautiful, it's kind of restrained, it's weird, It's it, it it's takes very, you through. Yeah, a, lot
0: of, I get a lot of Beach Boys, Brian Wilson, as you mentioned the Beatles there, he did record some of it in Abbey Road, you know, yeah. so I think, yeah, yeah. you know, he really lent into, I think it's a very unpredictable album. It wasn't what people were expecting, but then again, no. Frank Ocean, I think thrives on defying expectations, doesn't he? And like Totally, uh, totally. I, I didn't realise until I did I was doing a bit of research ahead of the interview how prolific you are as a songwriter for other artists, you know. And it's quite a yeah. there's quite a wild mix, you know, from Tom yeah, Burns, pretty, uh, pretty Tom mad, Brett, Ollie Moore's like and a load of like, you know, up to this very day, anyone that's knocking around, you seem to be the go to guy for people to collaborate with. Is that something that you have turned to from a very early stage in your career or is it a very different creative process for you to collaborate with someone on a song of theirs, not your own? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It is. I guess I guess for me, again, inspired
1: by him, like we've done mixtapes right from the beginning and and that was our space to collaborate. Like I've always I've always been much more obsessed with making songs and being in the studio than anything else that comes with being in a band. So, you know, we sort of have never really gone down the, like, famey route. We've always tried to avoid that as much as possible and I think have managed to do so. And obviously playing shows is, is the space where we feel like we're in a band that people like because you're suddenly confronted with, like, the reality of it, which is at both at both times amazing and, uh, you know, a massive fuck, like I said. But uh, in the studio, I love it so much. Like, you know, we, we made mi- these mixtapes we made right from the start, like, which a lot of people don't know exist, by the way. They're called Other People's Heartache. Parts one, two, three, and four, and the first two were completely illegal because I was just sampling things off the <laughs> internet and, and collaborating. We had people like K. Tempest on there, and oh, wow. you know, we've had Liz, we've had Lizzo and Haim and Rag and Bone Man, and and a rapper called F. Stokes. Stokes. Um, there's so many, so many different people that we that we met along the way, and you know, and, and sort of brought into that world. Um, Ralph from Killer King uh, was it Craig David, like lots of a big mix of kind of sort of artists that we admire and then also brand new artists who've kind of come through our studio and worked with us. Cause we, yeah, we, we, after our second album, we made two albums in a tiny little basement with no windows. And then eventually we're like, right, I feel like we might be able to do this for a bit longer. So let's let's build our own place. And we, we in South London, we just found this like funny old warehouse and turned it into a studio, which wow. is where I am now. Yeah. yeah. And it was kind of the home for like, for a minute, we had a record label and, you know, we signed Dragon Bowman and, and and sort of helped with his first EP and, and the album. Um, and and a bunch of other artists, sort of like some kind of indie artists. It became a quite a nice home. Our friends work upstairs in the attic, doing like video editing and 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 making music videos. And so it's a nice collective.
0: It, it feels like a bit of a co-op or a collective. That, yeah,
1: a place that was the point. I think I think that was, I think that was the idea. Like I'm not. I like I love pop music. I hate the idea of snobbery. You know, we well, when we released our first album, it was this kind of weird cinematic pop music that was quite like you know. Rambling on about David Lynch TV shows and and you know and and volcanoes and and house fires and weird moments in history and and and, and Greek myths and legends and I think you know it, we were a, a band of four guys but we didn't sound like a guitar band and people were like what the fuck are you and I think you know we got quite a lot of like stick for that it, it, but it, our it, whole thing our whole thing was like well I don't care like if we want to make mixtapes because we love Frank Ocean and we love The Weekend and we want to do that and have fun with it like. I'm as proud of those mixtapes as I am of, of, course. of our albums, you know, so we've essentially, you know, it's been, an, it's been a full on, you know, we've done four albums, two of which are double albums and we've done like four mixtapes. It's been a busy old time, but like, I, I love it. I just love, for me, there's sort of the joy from it comes from from making tunes and being in the studio. And if that's, if that's for somebody else, you know, we just, just wrote a song for Dermot Kennedy that came out on Friday wow. um, with, with him and and this other songwriter. And, and, and that was, that was really fun. But, you know, like I, yeah, it's just it's 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 the sort of it's the satisfaction of of, of writing just rock, just that feeling when you are in a in a writing session and the song kind of you all get that feeling of excitement and you, and you love it and I, I'm not I like to hope I'm not pretentious like my I, I the music I love and listen to will be you know things like I'm chosen today and like the Bonivers of the world and like you know Siggo Ross and Sofian Stevens and and Kate Bush and like you know, like probably and Bowie and like weirder weirder stuff but like um, I think you can. I don't think that should stop. That's like a different hat to wear to, 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 to write pop music, and I don't share the. Aggressive snobbery that some people do about th- our genre. I think, and I actually you know, think I, I, as, I, as 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 music, as music progresses, I think people care less and less. Like kids,
0: I think so. Kids
1: or kids or people who like are finding music now, like because streaming exists. I think our manager put it really well. She's like, it's not about what's new anymore. It's about what's new to you, and and I and, and it's about the point of discovery, and that could be some like joke video on TikTok, or it could be like an amazing old documentary, or it could be the closing credits to a film, or it could be the radio. You know, like the, all of these things now exist, and and I think. It's uh, I'm sort of glad that when when we started, people were like annoyed that we weren't doing one thing, and that feels like, you know, stuff the cultures like kind of changed now to the point where that doesn't really matter anymore, and people I hopefully are a bit more kind of accepting of that. Stuff. And I think but, yeah.
0: they are, and I think really since the on as onset or some would say onslaught of Spotify, obviously you know yeah. Apple Music that. I remember when I was coming up, you had one album that you bought. I remember the very first album I bought was R.E.M.'s Out of Time, and then oh, the way. that was that that was it. That was your best friend, your only friend, yeah. really, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For maybe a month or so, and then you go, okay, now it's on to the next one. And so I think the way people have engaged uh, have changed the way they have engaged music is problematic in in many ways. Of course, it's become very, I think disposable you know uh, the, the art form of the album people are kind of cherry picking their favorite tracks and then but having said yeah. that it has opened up i think especially those coming into music at maybe their teen years to open young people up to a whole wide range of genres and influences I also think
1: if, if, if you're like, if you're like me i completely agree with you and if i think if you're like me as well like I I listen to music on on streaming services, but I also like if I love an album, I'm gonna buy it on record. Yeah. And even if I don't listen to it that much on the vinyl, like I have it, I get to like you know I love still pouring through the artwork, reading the booklet, like those things. I love the aesthetics of of, of records and artwork and stuff as well. So like, yeah, that uh, uh, I think I think you can do both, and I think it's people are still yeah. I think you've just got to accept it. A little bit like with radio, people there'll be people out there who just want to hear singles and they'll just hear songs that come through and playlists or whatever. And then there's going to be people who like that ignite something in them and they want to go deep, deep down that path and of properly course. engage with artists. There's,
0: there's room and opportunity for everyone, no matter how far or wide or deep they want to go with music. And I think that's wonderful. But was before, you know, in Ireland, and I know this is the case in England as well for many, many years that there was BBC Radio 1, there was Radio Luxembourg and that were the only two outlets for kids to get what was happening, especially in America, and to introduce themselves to the Blues, the Stones, the Beatles. And when you think about it, though, it was really quite an unhealthy uh, relationship. Very, I suppose, one-sided. There was some guy in a beard with a pair of... Just a, with, with a, a just, and a turtleneck, just going, oh, I don't like that. So they don't get no. to hear it, you know, so... I think as as time has evolved, it is, and listen, I'm not saying it's not without its problems as regards what artists get paid, you know, I suppose, yeah. you know, the, the money side of the financial side of things, but I really think it has democratized music to a large extent. I suppose we should go back, we're going back now for your yeah. sec- to, to your second record for your recorded history, Dan, and we're going back yes. now, this, the year 2005. This often happens on this podcast where I will genuinely, sincerely thank the guest for Reintroducing an album that I haven't listened to in years, and this is one that was it was a big one for me back in two thousand and five. Listen to it when, at the only time that is pertinent to listen to this album around one or two a.m. this morning, and of yeah. course, and I want to talk to you about your second choice. It is the Johnson's "I Am a Bird Now." What a, what an incredible, magnificent album it is! Can you tell us why you've chosen this? I mean, it's just
1: it's just beautiful. It's just one of the most stunningly beautiful albums I think. When I first heard it, I was at school, and um, one of my friends was like, "Oh God, have you heard? Have you heard this? Have you heard this artist? What the weirdest voice in the whole world?" And and we had this discussion about whether or not we liked her voice or if we just um, were kind of mystified by it. And I remember listening to "Hope There's Someone" for the first time, and it is just like it's kind of otherworldly in that mm. in that she sounds like no one else, but it's the haunting simplicity of the piano. I think. As opening it,
0: lines go on an album, and it stopped me in my tracks again last night, and I knew it was coming. I've, I did remember the album fairly well, and I'm just going to put it on, and then I hope there's someone who'll take care of me when I die, and you're going, oh. It just, yeah,
1: everything. Every every line on the album yeah. is like, you know, it's 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 love, it's loss, it's transitioning, it's abuse, it's like physical abuse, and it's... um. Just all the messy complications of life, and kind of, and, and the mental complexities of everything, and, and um, it's so like, a, like fantastically like simple as well. Like um, her piano playing is 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 really beautiful, but not you know it's not virtuosic or, or ridiculous. But it's just it's everything about it, every note that's played. Feels thought through, but also feels really live. Like you feel like you're in the yeah, room with exactly, that record. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those you can hear the yeah. you can hear the creaking of the chair. So it's it's both otherworldly and and insanely intimate. Like you, you you feel you know it feels like you're peeking into the, into somebody's brain. But yeah, it's, there's it's a just...
0: there's a ghostly quality to it that's I think is a very haunting. We can use all these adjectives, of course, but it's it's, it's almost impossible to pin down. I was trying to describe her voice, Anoni's voice, and I I couldn't quite pin it down and then i saw a, a review i think it was on all music and it described it as nina simone meets brian ferry and i was like that's fairly that's almost yeah. there like it yeah she, she has, she has yeah. the gravitas obviously the little bit of vibrato and the deep and the range the, the range and that's the power yeah. yeah and I, you're thinking about um, the years 2005 this is well before trans issues were even, oh were even i know exactly conception. so to have an album yeah. Yeah. to have yeah. an
1: album that's like you know Straight on confronting and and hopefully confusing uh, and educating a lot of people was was amazing and and uh, I mean to say brave feels like uh, like it's really condescending doesn't it Yeah yeah it does Yeah yeah it feels really really condescending when you know that's her life and her experience and she shared it Mm. incredibly beautifully through this album and you listen to it and you're like emotionally along along for that journey and it's it's um it's so beautiful and then obviously that all these amazing guests pop up, you know. Lou so, Reed is in there. I know Lou Lou Reed. Yeah, um, Rufus Wainwright as well. Yeah, and all these people, and, and Boy George as well. He sings so beautiful. Boy George together. sings, sings, "You Are My Sister," and I, I think, as someone that you know, grew up being kind of aware of Boy George and and like Karma Chameleon and stuff. But I didn't really, I didn't really know that much of their music. Like to hear. This that haunting voice coming in the chorus. I th- of you I think my Boy sister. George
0: is one of the rare cases of his voice genuinely imp- improving with age. I think yeah, obviously he, the- He's on that.
1: He's on that Mark Ronson track as well, and mm. it's like the soulfulness of it is so stunning. But that's the thing. I think this album. It, it's 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 actually really collaborative. I, I I hadn't in looking back at it now and seeing all the different artists, like amazing artists who 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 pop up all, all over. Like having Devendra Barnhart on, on guitar like just pop up on guitar and uh, but but it is I don't know all the drum sounds when they kick in like Fistful of Love to me is like one of my favourite songs I think yeah. it's just it's you know it's it's absolutely devastating to have this kind of like Elvis-esque song with this like swagger and this brass that's just about like you know being rejected and being, being physically abused by someone that you're in love with like you know it, it's speaking to it's speaking to something that's absolutely horrific but a reality of life for so many people in so many different relationships all over the world, you know, through throughout the history of mankind and at a, uh, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's I mean, it, like it's weird to say that having just said what I said, but it's a, it's a, <laughs> a fucking banger. Like, it's a massive it, tune. It, like, it is massive. Is yeah, it's, it's a real tune. All the melodies song, are incredible. Yeah. But, but you listen to it, and you're like, oh my God, this is, this is as devastating as it would feel to be hit by someone that you love. You know, it's it's just um, it's yeah, it's it's really really beautiful. And you know, I think the story is a journey of transitioning, the album as as a narrative, is brilliant and effective. And just yeah, within that, there are just some really amazing songs.
0: Like honestly, if you I would recommend anyone listening to this podcast to go back, cut out all the noise, and go back yeah. to listen to Antony the Johnson's "I Am a Bird Now" and the track for today, "I'm a I Am a Boy." It is as powerful a testimony as I have heard, through all the noise. And it got me to thinking, you know, with Bastille and and yourself and your songwriting, as prolific as you are, is there do you feel the pressure to take on, you know, I suppose so-called important, significant issues? You know, the environment, you, I mean, with the, the recent album, you take on technology and <laughs> the future. And is that something that you feel compelled to do? Or do you just feel, oh, they're looking for Pompeii again, so I'll just...
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think I think um, I think we've just always been a band who've had you know we've had some hits and then we've had a lot of music that people just you know as as you would expect as you were saying earlier about people streaming music and stuff, you know, people just, there's a lot of what we've done that I think has always been trying to show people like the breadth of everything, but that ultimately people just don't hear or get to hear or want to hear or whatever. But, you know, throughout our albums, there's 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 a song on our second album called The Lesser of Two Evils that is a kind of nod to Bang Bang My Baby Shot Me Down. Uh, there's just, a, you know it's like one kind of, one electric guitar and a vocal and it's this kind of weird nighttime, slightly odd, like bluesy song that could not be further from Pompeii if it tried. But, you know, you can't, you can't force that down people's throats the fact that it exists and we try and do you know i think our everything we've done from the mixtapes through through to you know completely reorchestrating all of our music from the ground up like that wasn't just adding violins and brass to our songs that was rescoring recording totally reinterpreting and remixing all of our songs with an orchestra you know those projects for us it's like it's it's both because we want to do it and it's Incredibly creative, fulfilling, and exciting, but it's also to be like, look, everyone, <laughs> we're, we're more than Pompeii, which is probably just like a thing that we will always live with. What's your relationship with
0: with with Pompeii now? After, I
1: after I this love series. it, and I love playing it. So I, like people, I think expect us to sort of resent it a little bit. I, it's it's it changed all of our lives, you know, for you know for better or for worse, and it's taken us to nearly every, you know it's taken us to every continent around the world multiple yeah. multiple times. You know that it helped our first album be. As 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 bizarrely massive as it was, and you know, it's it's given us a career. It's given us this amazing platform. It's allowed me to write with some amazing people. Like I I love it. And then when we play it at the end of a show, um, in you know, in a field like Reading, seeing like fifty thousand people or whatever, just lose their absolute minds, get up on each other's shoulders, Jeez. and sing along it every word louder than me. Be like, how can you? Absolutely
0: incredible. It must be an incredible yeah. feeling to feel have, that you... love coming back, channeled through a song you wrote. What? what is it now 9 years ago or 10
1: years ago that- yeah yeah but i wrote on my on a laptop in my bedroom by myself you to know think and, of and, it- and produced and produced with my friend it's nuts it's nuts it's it's as mad now as it still is then um but to, to to answer your question sorry i think our first album for me was all about kind of escapism via stories that i thought were interesting because i think at the time i was like god i'm just it's like i have just finished uni i'm i'm working at a hospital and then i was like temping at like a i was just working behind a desk and stuff and i was like my life is so is so boring i've got nothing you know nothing of worth to say. So I guess I kind of channeled my experiences through through myths and legends and stories. And, you know, that's where Pompeii came from and like Laura Palmer and, all the, and, and the Albatross and all these literary references because I'm a bit of a like film and, and book nerd. But so I like to reference those things anyway. But I think going into our second album, it was, you know, it was around 2015. We were making it 2014, 2015. And, you know, the world was changing. It was polarizing. Trump was elected. Brexit was happening. All of these things. Like we suddenly felt like we'd not been that vocal in public and we'd not really spoken about things that we, we thought passionately about, mainly because we didn't want to talk about ourselves or anything. Like, we really shied away from interviews and tried to be, I guess, tried to shrink ourselves so that we weren't, Hmm. seen as famous people but I I don't know it's very that was suddenly a very hard time to not say like I think this Brexit thing that people are voting for is fucking bullshit I think it's dangerous I think it's divisive and I think it's it's coming from you know it's coming from a space where people are being lied to and that's you know we've we've sort of lived as a band and as people we've grown up and lived through the era in which the internet went from being a sort of like slightly fringe thing to like a daily part of everyone's lives right through to like a minutely part of everyone's lives in your hand, going clubbing, sh- going to a house party, shutting the curtains to the literal world burning outside as a way, as, as a, like a quite a clunky metaphor for, you know, for what was happening in the ways that we kind of bury our heads in the sand. And and you know, our third album, again, it's, it's sort of, it's it's I wanted to make an, uh, sorry, our fourth album, This Give Me The Future one, I wanted to make something that was all about like escaping into your mind and into nostalgia, into the future, into technology, into entertainment, all the things we do to distract ourselves in, you know, for, for, for better or for worse. Um, but, I never want to come at things from a place of judgment. It's always I, I think we always try and have the perspective of someone who's living in the world who's like, "Wow, this is confusing, and I don't know everything. this yeah. This feels wrong to me. This feels right to me. But like ultimately, sometimes unplugging and just being with the people around you is is a way, because I think we're you know looking for ways to make okay things okay. And I think alright, this brings but... us
0: beautifully as we talk about the future. Let us finish with your third choice for a recorded history well back into the past. I've really enjoyed going backwards on this one, Dan, I have to say, because normally we'd start with the, the earlier ones, but it's nice to go back. And the year for your third choice for recorded history is 1998, right? And I this is a big year for me as well. I was midway through college. Things were going very, very well. And an album came out that was, I think he could easily say without fear of contradiction, era-defining. What is it?
1: Oh, education of Lauryn Hill. Yes. Um, is, yeah, I mean, so for me, I was, I was a kid. Um, my sister was really obsessed with hip-hop. The first song that we ever owned was, um, was the Fuji's cover of Killing Me Softly and then, and then that, that Fuji's record, the score was like a really big album in our house. So like, uh, you know, I was already really obsessed with Lauren Hill as a singer and as a rapper. Uh, and then yeah, I guess I guess I was too young to kind of understand, I think the the emotional heft of this record and what it was to have made it as she did and to have been in one of the biggest bands in the world and left to do her own thing. You know, she went off and like stayed with some musicians in in like basically a studio apartment in in New York and like started the record and everything around her relationship with Wyclef and how much of a headfuck that must have been. And yeah. um, anyway, but but ultimately for me, it was, these were, the, this was like, it was a really great time where this is brilliant, brilliant music. It's era defining. It's one of the best albums ever, I think. And it was also super mainstream pop music at the same time. But like, it's just everything about It's incredible. The production, her vocals, her, her lyrics are devastating. You know, I still think like To Zion, the song that she wrote for her son, is like one of the most, you know, choosing, choosing to, as a very mainstream incredibly successful pop star in a huge band choosing to you know having this sort of tension of like should i have this child should i not but then you know choosing to become a mother in the midst of that career and then carry on with the career you know i think again it's something that maybe doesn't get talked about a huge amount well, I think um, she was very hard
0: she was a very hard figure at the time lauren hill to i suppose Pigeonhole and pinned down, which was I suppose yeah. probably the want, the culture at the time, still is to a large extent, especially with female artists. She was definitely yeah. her own woman. And I think breaking free from the Fuji's, she'd just gotten pregnant. She was maybe hanging around Jamaica's so the the Marley family and she just struck out on her own. As a music
1: fan, it's brilliant. Like yeah, like like you say, she she talks to so many, so many interesting sort of themes and and is so um. You know, it reminds me a bit of, of like Amy Winehouse's Back to Black. She's just so raw and so honest. And I still think her flow is like one of the best yeah. ever. It's a rare thing to be as incredible a rapper as you are a singer. Her vocals are beautiful. the the, the harmonies, the backing vocals are amazing to talk she was about, only you know. 22. Like to to yeah, no, no, her age is insane at the time. Yeah. But like you know, uh, the, the track I was mentioning to Zion yeah. was about like having encouragement from people around her in the music industry to abort her baby, and her being like, "Absolutely not! I'm going to have this child. I'm going to I'm going to be a mother and have my faith and and be a massive pop star and you know do all those things." Which is which is like amazing and empowering and so incredibly impressive. And oh, the fact that she wrote basically the entire album by herself is just not something that happens. Again, as, as someone who like sat in a room and wrote. I know, obviously, not to remotely compare or put uh, put those things in the same sentence, but like as someone who made made our first sort of album and, and our, our first bunch of music by myself because I just thought that's how yeah. people did it. I didn't know about the whole world of collaboration and stuff. Um, I, I looked to other people who, you know, what I, in, in all these albums we picked today, I looked to people who have kind of really unique voices where you instantly know it's them, and who just went off and kind of did their own thing and 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 tried to use their voice both literally and in terms of what they were saying to say interesting things and 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 give a perspective and i think yeah this album it's just it's just amazing i can't, like i actually can't i can't wax <laughs> lyrical about it enough but the fact that it's got like D'Angelo on it yeah. San santana playing guitar yeah. like mary j Blige, like, it's, it's just oh it's it's incredible and, and she it's recorded
0: like, it in Bob was it Bob Marley's studio half of the album in Jamaica she was carrying Bob Marley's grandchild yeah relation yeah. with Bob marley's son. So I think, you know, there's a sense of that legacy, that almost that musical royalty flowing through her and using, I suppose, being very inspired by how Bob Marley would have used his platform, used his talent and his music to as a, as a battle cry, as to, you know, give a voice to people that don't have it. And yeah. there's definitely a sense of that, I think, maybe putting too much on it, but the, I don't think you can put too much on this album. It, I was listening again last night, thank you for that. And each track one after the it is flawless and as you say her flow her rapping and her voice singing voice it's so rare that you would get somebody who's 10 out of 10 at both and to have the power and the charisma that she brings to that record it really is an astonishing achievement it is an amazing album
1: oh it really is yeah and there's actually i like i feel like totally unequipped to talk about it i know it's hard Other, other than just as someone who was around lucky enough to be around when it first came out heard it at the time and loved it so much and have been able to through different, like, decades of my life, revisit it and hear so much more. You know, there's a really good, um, there's a really good Song Exploder series on it that, that was wonderful for me to hear so much more about the kind of emotion, the history, the sort of technicalities of making the record, the sampling that they do, what, what was live, what wasn't, you know, what what's kind of, what's interpolation of other music and, you know, so much about, like, the history of her life that I, I guess when, you know, when you're a kid and music comes out, you maybe don't think that much about, who they are or where they're at in their life, and particularly in that era when like people were quite private, you know, um, it's it's sort of like you said, it's just it's that's the CD you have or, or the album you have for like that month, and you just obsess over it and you live in it, and you have this version of how it works in your head, mm. and then uh, yeah, and and so it's been one I've come back to loads and loads, and we were lucky enough a few years ago to play. Um, at Glastonbury on the Pyramid stage, b- before her, immediately wow. before her. Oh my god!
0: Um,
1: so obviously, for us in our in our little band world, that was quite like a big, big surreal moment getting to play on the Pyramid stage and then being able to sort of go go back, have a couple of drinks, decompress, and then walk out and watch Lauren Hill, who like is probably one of my biggest idols. To watch her from side of stage was was unbelievable it was really really amazing um yeah and i mean it's, it's again a testament like she's not you know she's an mtv unplugged and sort of other stuff but she's not really done a record since and no. i think yeah. you know to speak to, to speak to a bit like with frank ocean the, an artist that has the power to do exactly what they want and what they say and not feel under pressure or i'm sure they feel under pressure but not you know not act upon releasing music just because it's what people do or they feel like they should and
0: And i I think yeah she's one of those artists as you you mentioned frank ocean as well is that there's a certain entitlement that has crept into music fandom uh i think in the last couple of maybe the last decade even that people expect a lot and they kind of go uh you you haven't released a single in three days you know and you know and i think with the likes of frank ocean to have the courage and the strength and I suppose, uh, as you say, the cojones or whatever, <laughs> to, to just to push back on to, that, To push yeah. back, just go, no, totally. no, to, we, you're going to dance to my tune, literally. This is how I'm going to do it. And I think that she was one of the last great, I suppose, mavericks in that way. She just doesn't, she doesn't give a shit. She just, she's not yes. there for us. And I think that's, that is, it, therein lies her power. She'll, she'll, she'll release stuff. She'll, she'll come on stage whenever she wants. She could be 20 yeah. minutes late, half an hour late. It's Lauren Hill. Yeah, yeah. She owes you nothing. Yeah. She owes us nothing. Yeah. And she's left us with yeah. one of the greatest albums, not just of the 90s, but of all time. And I want to, Dan, that brings us beautifully to the end. What an incredible chat. Thank you so much. Wide-ranging, interesting, intriguing, and very, very informative. And thank you again for reintroducing me to three albums. We spoke about Frank Ocean's Blonde. We'd Anthony and the Johnsons. I'm a bird now. And we're finishing up there with Lauren Hill and the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I'd advise anyone listening to the podcast here to Recorded History to go back, listen, treat yourselves. Dan has given you a little menu there that'll keep you going for quite some time. Sorry for, sorry for chewing your absolute ear off. Not at all, Dan. You've helped make a really very, very interesting podcast today. And I want to thank you on behalf of myself and the listeners for taking the time out of your just quite ear and eye-wateringly busy schedule <laughs> to spend talking about yeah, some no. of your favorite records for recorded history. I have to ask the dreaded question, put the Sophie's Choice to you. You can only walk away today from recorded oh. history. I sound like Bruce, Bruce Forsyth. You can only walk away with one record. You can only oh. pick one. I, 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 really... I'm going to guess myself, and then I'm going to see if you agree. So paper, rock, paper, Scissors, Rock. Okay, so what is the record you're walking away with, down from recorded history?
1: I don't know. That's really hard. Um, I'm trying to think because... I love Miseducation with Lauren Hill, but it has all those interludes in it. So if I could only listen to that forever, would they get on my nerves? I don't know. Um, the same kind of goes for Blonde. I'm a bird now is is incredibly devastating. I think, may, I don't know, maybe in terms of like, oh, I don't know. I actually just don't know. Okay, it's, you too know
0: it's fine. You can take all three.
1: Okay, thank you, I'll, thank I'll you very much.
0: dispensation today, because... You you're, like, you're like,
1: as long as you shut up, you can take <laughs> all three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just give him the... God, just go, push him out the door, take the give three, a... <laughs> it's fine, they're free. They're free. Dan Smith fun. from Bastille, I really want to thank you so much. That was wonderful, and thanks for taking the time. For, no, not at all, for, man. for sharing Thanks for having your three me. favorite records for recorded history. Thanks so much for having me. So there it is, the comprehensive recorded history of the extremely lovely and chatty Dan Smith. Such an engaging man, and I really hope you enjoyed our trip through Dan's Recorded History and that you'll join me next week. And every Sunday after that, if you want to check out any of Dan's choices or indeed anything at all that might tickle your eardrums, I would absolutely love it if you did so by way of our splendid sponsors at TheRecordHub.com. None of this would be remotely possible without them. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. Now hit the old subscribe button and become a weekly listener. But above all that, subscribe to yourself. You're all stunzos. Good luck. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced, and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D. Ready. Our series is proudly supported by therecordhub.com, your local Irish and online record store.